Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Okay, so last week um, we looked at all three of the major views of end times and Revelation 20 and the millennium. And I didn't really tell you my full view last week because I wanted to be fair. And I felt like last week was maybe a little bit more confusing because you had all views and it was like, okay, which one do I pick? So what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to share with you my view and I'm going to take us through Revelation 20, understanding how I understand it. And then, but before we do that, I want to talk about the differences between a covenant theology and dispensationalism. Now, these words may not mean a lot to you, covenant theology and dispensationalism. Uh, dispensationalism was one of the views that, it was the last view that I showed last week. It's the most complicated. It's the newest kid on the block. Um, 1830s is about when it came around in England. Then in the early 1900s with the Schofield Reference Bible. Um, it's the popular view now, but it's not been the most popular view in church history. Um, and so, what I want to do is I want to talk about what covenant theology is, is what most Reformed Protestants hold to versus dispensational theology. So this is going to be new material. If you don't know anything about this, I'm going to give you these differences, and then we'll get into Revelation 20, and we may not finish tonight. So hold on to your horses. we got a lot of information, okay? So um, covenant theology... Basically, and these are two different ways to interpret the entire Bible, like how you view the Bible and how God operates with His creation, how God operates in salvation. Um, so the covenant, covenant theology looks at the Bible with three different covenants. And first of all, what's a covenant? A covenant is um, a cutting. It's, the, it's from the Hebrew word barit, which means to cut a covenant. It really means a solemn contract, probably more so than a contract, but a solemn agreement between two parties, oftentimes ratified in blood. And so God makes covenants with His creation all throughout the Bible. And so covenant theology says there's three big covenants, three big overarching covenants that dominate how to understand the Bible. Okay, The covenant of redemption the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace. And I'm going to explain what these three are first, okay? Because two of those take place in time. One of them takes place in eternity, okay? So what is the covenant of redemption? Louis Burkhoff, who wrote probably the best systematic theology, defines it this way. The covenant of redemption may be defined as the agreement between the Father giving the Son as head and redeemer of the elect, and the Son voluntarily taking the place of those whom the Father had given Him. In a nutshell, the covenant of redemption is an eternal agreement that was made between the Father and the Son before time began to come and accomplish our redemption. The Father gave Jesus a people called the elect. Jesus came for those people called the elect, it was an agreement between the Trinity and eternity past. And so there's this covenant where God will infallibly save His people through sending Jesus to die on the cross and rise again. Okay? 
Next is the covenant of works. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis. We're going to go from Genesis to Revelation tonight, okay? And everything in between. You guys ready for that? Genesis 2, 8 through 17. Let's just pick up in verse 15. Genesis 2, let's just actually pick up in verse 15. Is everybody there? Now at this point, Let's just stop. Who are the, who's the only person on earth at this point? Okay. So the covenant of works is between God the Father and Adam. Okay? Because there's no other person yet. It's a covenant between... And, and who is Adam? Adam is the first human being. He's the representative of all humans. So let's pick up in Genesis 2, 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day of you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the very first time God gives a command. So what is the stipulation of the covenant? God says to Adam, what must Adam do? You have to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, so the covenant stipulation is, if you obey, you will live. If you die, I mean, if you eat it or disobey, you will die. So is there anything here based upon grace yet? This is a covenant where Adam has to obey. He's given a test. Now, did Adam pass the test? Adam failed the test. Adam failed the covenant of works. God gave him one co- God God entered into a covenant with Adam and gave him one stipulation. What was the one stipulation? You're free to eat of all these trees, but the one tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat it. What did Adam and Eve do? They ate it. Okay. So, because Adam ate the fruit and disobeyed God, he broke the covenant of works. He did not obey. And thus, Romans 5.12 tells us, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who's that one man? Adam. Death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay, so every single person that is born into this world is born under the covenant of works, which means that you are guilty and you're hardwired to want to try to earn your salvation by working for it. What does every religion tell you? You have to do something. Okay? Every religion known to man or every belief system is all about you doing something. Okay, whether it's Islam, the five pillars of Islam, whether it's Buddhism, whether it's Roman Catholicism, whatever it is, you have to do something in order to earn that salvation. And so every single person is born under the covenant of works because of Adam, they're dead in sin, and we're hardwired to want to work for our salvation. Okay, so the first covenant is a covenant of redemption. God God the Father and Jesus the Son in eternity past said, we're going to save people. It's an eternal covenant between the, the Godhead. The covenant of works was between God and Adam, where God said, you must obey, 
Adam didn't obey, plunged every single human being into depravity, and so we're all born under the covenant of works. Okay. The third covenant is what we call the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace starts in Genesis 3.15. What could God have done after Adam and Eve disobeyed and they hid themselves? Could God, what could God have done? He could have said, we're done. You disobeyed. You're going to die. You go to hell. We're done with this whole human race thing. But he doesn't do that. He says there's a, you're going to have to deal with the consequences of your sin. And then in Genesis 3.15, which is the most important verse in the first part of the Bible, God pronounces a curse upon the serpent. But notice what he says. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who's that talking about? It's talking about Satan and Jesus. Genesis 3.15 is the promise of a coming Messiah who will save people from their sins. And it's all a covenant of grace because is God requiring us to do anything to earn that? Okay, now look at verse 21. Look at Genesis 3.21. The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. What does God do to Adam and Eve? He kills an animal to clothe them, picturing the need for a substitutionary atonement to take care of sin. So, the covenant of grace is first announced in Genesis 3.15. And here's the thing you need to understand. The covenant of grace is one unified covenant between God and His people that unfolds through redemptive history in particular stages, but it's still the same covenant. It's still grace. The covenant is God says, I'm going to save you by grace. Now, there's different ways it works itself out in different covenants, but it's all one covenant. It's a covenant of grace. So in the covenant of grace, you have different manifestations of how God unfolded that covenant. Okay? So the Adamic covenant, Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 3.21, what did God do? God covered Adam with animal skins to show a picture of redemption through a sacrificial substitute and the promise of a coming Messiah. Still a covenant of grace. Do Adam and Eve cover themselves? Do Adam and Eve die in their place and pay for their own sin? Okay. Okay. What's the next covenant? God makes a covenant with Noah. Same covenant of grace, just a different unfolding in history. God makes a covenant with Noah before the flood and after the flood, and it's all based on grace. And God saves his family alone from the flood. And God promises, I'll never flood the earth again. So it's still grace. Did Noah earn being in the ark? Was God just in destroying the world? Was it grace that he saved just one family? Yes. So it was a covenant of grace. It's still under that same big covenant, the covenant of grace. Okay. Next, you have the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. God makes it. Go ahead. 
He worked a long time, yeah. Just took a long time. We also have the Abrahamic covenant. So God makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12. And what does God say? All throughout Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, all throughout Genesis, God says to Abraham, you're going to have descendants, you're going to have a nation, you're going to have a promised land, you're going to be a blessing to all nations, and through your lineage would come the promised Messiah of Genesis 3.15. All nations will be blessed through your seed. So through the seed, through the lineage of, of Abraham, the nation of Israel would be birthed, Jesus would be birthed, Abraham's the father of faith. So it was a... A unilateral, it was a, it was a covenant of grace with Abraham. Okay, the next one you look at and you say, okay, wait a minute, the Mosaic covenant, that sounds like law to me, not grace. We're going to talk about that this Sunday. Did God give the Israelites the Ten Commandments in order to be saved through the Red Sea? Or did He save them through the Red Sea and then give them the Ten Commandments to obey? What comes first, salvation or the law? Are you saved by the law? Are you saved by grace? Do you still need to obey the law? How can you obey the law? Because you've been saved by grace. So the Mosaic Covenant, God saved Israel through the Red Sea, set them apart as His chosen people by grace, and then after that gives them the law. Now, the law and the sacrificial system that was all under the Mosaic Covenant was a Temporary picture of the coming Messiah. What's the Day of Atonement? What's all those laws? What's all, what, what are all the laws and the sacrificial system? Is that a permanent thing? How are Old Testament Israelites saved? Same way we're saved. By grace alone, through faith alone. But they're looking forward to a coming Messiah. And that sacrificial system is a picture for them to see what God requires through blood sacrifice. Okay? Whoops. Broadcast failed. Okay. Let's try this again. Um, I wonder if it's because... Let's try to go... I'm on CFIS extension. I got a full... We'll try this again. See if it does it. Uh, it's not doing it. We must be having a problem with our Wi-Fi. Um, let me turn this off, and let's go to cell phone signal, and let's see if we can get it. doing it that way. Oh, there we go. Okay. So I guess we're back on. So the Mosaic covenant. Okay. Then you've got what we call the Davidic covenant. God entered into a covenant with David, King David, that he would have an eternal kingdom with descendants on the throne. And there would be a a son of David, which is none other than Jesus. Still a covenant of grace that God establishes. It's definitely a covenant of grace with David because what do we know about David? Did he deserve? 
Actually, guys, when you look at the Old Testament law, what did David deserve? He committed adultery and murder. What does the Old Testament tell you that you have to do to somebody who commits adultery and murder? Stone him. So God preserves David because through him, Jesus is going to come. So if God were to punish David, there would be no Jesus. So God does that. Then in Jeremiah 31, we have the new covenant promise. You go to Jeremiah 31, and God promises a day of a new covenant, which would involve um, writing the law in our hearts, regeneration, the complete uh, forgiveness of sins. Um, Jesus would come and inaugurate the new covenant. So you have one covenant of grace. It starts in Genesis 3.15 with the promise of a coming Messiah. It unfolds, it unfolds, it unfolds, it unfolds. And finally, Jesus comes on the scene. And when did Jesus inaugurate the new covenant, which was still the same covenant of grace? At the Passover, on the night of His betrayal. At the Last Supper, He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. And then what does He do? He dies on the cross for our sins and rises again. So, in covenant theology, all of the covenant promises in the Old Testament to Abraham, to David, to, to Moses, to Noah, to Adam, they all find their fulfillment in Christ and the church. So Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament promises. It's one unified covenant of grace that unfolds through different ways and ultimately culminates in Christ and His church. Okay? Now, that's covenant theology. One unified covenant of grace, one people of God, because there's a covenant of redemption that's called the elect. Whether you're an Old Testament saint or whether you're a New Testament believer, you're still the people of God because Christ has saved you. That's covenant theology. Now, in distinction to that, you have what we call dispensationalism. Now, dispensationalism is the exact opposite of covenant theology. They have divided up the way God operates into seven dispensations. Not one unified covenant of grace, but seven different ways God operated in time with His people in different ways. So it's not a unified covenant of grace. There's seven different ways. You've got the age of innocence, which is with Adam. You've got the age of conscience, which is after Adam sinned. You've got the age of human government, which is Noah. You've got the age of promise with Abraham. You've got the age of the law. One of the things dispensationalists will say is that Israel made a very rash vow when they accepted the Ten Commandments. They shouldn't have accepted the Ten Commandments because they were accepting law and not grace. Now, what do we know about the Ten Commandments? God says, I've saved you by grace, then given you the law, as a way to, to live out your life in obedience. Then there's the age of grace, which is what we're under right now, according to dispensationalism. And then there's going to be the age of the kingdom, which will be a literal thousand-year millennium. Okay? So one of the big issues in dispensationalism, and by the way, I'm telling you tonight, I am not a dispensationalist. I hold a covenant theology. You can agree to disagree. It's a secondary issue. It's not a dogma. Um, it's a secondary doctrine. But one of the big issues in dispensationalism is that they see a major distinction between ethnic Israel and the church. God has two plans. He's got ethnic Israel, and then He's got 
the Gentile church. So us here, we're a different plan that God has for Israel. Covenant theology says, nope. The church, it wasn't called the church, but God's people started with Adam. And all the way through the Old Testament and all the way through the New Testament, all the way today, God has one people called the elect. And they're all saved the same way, by grace through faith in Christ. Based upon the covenant of redemption that God said, I'm going to give Jesus a people. Jesus comes for those people. Those people will come to Him, whether they're in the Old Testament, whether they're in the New Testament, whether they're you. When you come to faith in Christ, God has a people, His one people. Dispensationalists say, no, God has two people. He's got ethnic Israel, and He's got us. And we have different plans, and we have different destinies. Ultimately, we're going to all get to heaven, but we have a different, a different way of operating. Okay? So, let me just give you four passages of Scripture written to Gentiles, and you guys tell me what these Scriptures say about if God has two people. Romans 2, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. If you are a Christian, have you been circumcised by the heart? Has the Holy Spirit come and lived in you? Then you're what? A spiritual Jew. What does he say there? Just because you're outwardly an ethnic Jew doesn't really mean anything. What really counts in God's economy is have you been saved by grace and have the Holy Spirit? Are you a spiritual Jew? Okay? Galatians 3.29 If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What was Abraham's offspring? Literally, the ethnic Jews. But what does Paul say here? If you're Christ's, are you guys Christ's? Then you're Abraham's offspring. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm. Remember that old song? We're all children of Abraham. It doesn't matter our ethnicity. It matters our relationship to Christ. Okay, Paul's talking to Gentiles in Galatians 6.16. As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, upon the Israel of God. Who does he call the Israel of God? Gentile church, the Israel of God. Philippians 3.3, he's talking to Gentiles. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We are the circumcision. What's that a code word for? Who were the circumcision in the Old Testament and New Testament? The Jews. So Paul seems to think that God has one unified people And we are spiritually called Israel or spiritual Jews because of the spiritual nature of the new covenant that's taken over us when we become Christians where the Holy Spirit comes and lives with us. Okay? So I'm going to start saying CT and DT. So CT is covenant theology and DT is dispensational theology. I just didn't want to type those out. Okay? So in CT, covenant theology, God has one plan, one covenant. Starting with Adam, Genesis 3.15, he clothes them with animal skins and he gives the promise of the Messiah. And that purpose is to call out his one body, the church, 
which comprises both Old and New Testament believers. In dispensational theology, God has two separate plans. He plans an earthly kingdom for Israel to be realized in the millennium and a heavenly plan for the church, which will be raptured out of the great tribulation. So key to dispensational theology is a pre-tribulational rapture and a literal thousand-year millennium populated by converted Jews. In covenant theology, whoops. In covenant theology, the purpose of Christ's first coming was to die for our sins and establish the new Israel, the new temple, the fulfilled realization of all those Old Testament prophecies that came true in Christ and the church. So when Jesus came, he says in the Sermon on the Mount, what does he say? I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to to fulfill it. And so Jesus came to establish His people, one people, through His death, burial, and resurrection based upon the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace. In dispensational theology, the purpose of Christ's first coming was to establish the messianic kingdom to the Jews of His day. If the Jews would have accepted Jesus' offer, this earthly kingdom would have been established immediately where Jesus would have ruled as king in Jerusalem. Now, let's just stop right there. Nick, go ahead. You have a question. Okay. Explain to me the difference between Gentiles and Jews real quick. Okay. I, I know the general term, but yeah. I want to know how you... How the difference between Jews and Gentiles. Okay. The way the Bible would make the distinction is a Jew is someone who is ethnically, can tie their ethnicity, race, whatever, to an actual tribe of... Israel, they can trace their descendants back to the 12 tribes. Okay, and 10 of those tribes were lost in the northern kingdom. So really, it has to be Judah and Benjamin. That's why Paul says in Philippians 3, I'm from, he knew he was from the tribe of Benjamin. He could trace his lineage back. A Gentile is basically a non-Jew. Yep. Right. The flood. Yep. Noah and his wife. Yep. They had their children. Yep. The children had us. Yep. Essentially. Uh huh. Well, there are three sons, and from his three sons is where most of the different ethnicities of the world come from: Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But we all come from the same root. Yes. So technically, we can all trace our lineage back to Adam. Well, and that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. A big question is how do you do, how do, a big question is how do you know for sure that you are actually ethnically fully Jewish? Like how Jewish do you have to be to be ethnically a Jew? How Hispanic do I have to be, or how? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, as you can tell, I'm pretty much I've got I, I think I'm Scottish, Irish, British, and maybe a little bit of Belgium. Okay, so the question is, do you have to be 100% pure Jewish to be considered? So the, the dispensationalist view says that God has two plans. Now, here's the thing about the dispensational view. If, so Jesus came in the Gospels and, and offered the kingdom to the Jews of his day, which would have been a literal kingdom. He would have kicked out Rome, set up his kingdom in the Temple Mount, 
and ruled. Question, if that's so, what do you do with the cross? Now, they may say, well, after he sets up his kingdom, then he goes and dies on the cross for the Gentiles. But it almost makes it sound like God kind of had a plan that he knew wasn't going to happen and offered it to the Jews and they didn't take it. And so now, because the Jews didn't take the plan that God gave them, God goes to plan B, which is the Gentile church, and he's going to deal with us. And then when we're raptured out, God's going to go back to the plan he had with the Jews and deal with them in the end times. In, let me see where I'm at. Oh, in covenant theology, the New Testament becomes the interpretive grid in explaining the Old Testament prophecies. In dispensational theology, the Old Testament stands alone and the prophecies there are fulfilled in the future millennium for ethnic Israel, not in Christ and the church. That's a big thing. So when you come across, and I'm going to give you guys an example here. When you come across a prophecy in the Old Testament, a dispensationalist will say that prophecy in the Old Testament does not come true in Jesus and the church. That comes true in the millennium. Now they've got to prove that because I'm going to show you right here how an apostle, James, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, how he interprets an Old Testament prophecy. And if he interprets it a different way, then we probably need to understand how they interpreted prophecy. So the interpretive grid says, yes, there are some Old Testament prophecies that may stand alone that had an immediate fulfillment, but ultimately all of those prophecies are pointing to Christ and His church. So let's look at Amos 9, 11 through 12. This Old Testament, this is the prophet Amos. He's prophesying. Notice what he says, in that day. Good question. When's that day? Is that the millennium? Is that the new heavens and the earth? Is that the return of Christ? In that day, I will raise up the booth. Now that word booth means tabernacle or tent or temple. I will raise up the temple of David that's fallen. Okay. The temple had been destroyed and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Eden and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Okay, if you just read this at face value as an Old Testament prophecy, it sounds like at a future day, God's going to rebuild the temple. Is that what it sounds like? Okay. Now, if you just had that Old Testament prophecy by itself... That's what it could lead you to believe. But let's go to Acts 15 and see how James, the brother of Jesus, actually interprets that passage of Scripture. Okay, Now, this is Acts 15. This is the Jerusalem Council. What's the issue at the Jerusalem Council? The Pharisees were coming saying you had to be circumcised in order to be saved. And they sent a delegation. And so this is like the bigwigs. You have Paul, Barnabas, Peter, James... The bigwigs of the church come together, and basically Peter gives testimony about how God saved the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas give testimony about how God saved the Gentiles. And so everybody's in agreement. God saves by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. God saves Gentiles, not just Jews. Okay? That's what the whole Jerusalem Council is about. You don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. God saves you by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, regardless of whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Okay, pick up Acts 15, 11 through 18. But we believe... I think this is Peter speaking. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Who's the they? The Gentiles. Peter speaking. 
we're saved by grace just the way they're saved by grace. Jews and Gentiles saved the same way. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Paul and Barnabas as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James, this is the brother of Jesus, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take, them, to take from them a people for his name. And with this words of the prophets agree, just as it's written. Okay, what's he going to quote here? Amos 9 that we just read. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from old. How does James interpret that passage of Scripture? Does he see it as a future millennium with a rebuilt temple? How does he interpret it? The rebuilt temple is the inclusion of the Gentiles into salvation where you have one people of God, Jew and Gentile, that make up the body of Christ, the true spiritual temple. So covenant theology says we interpret the Old Testament in light of the New. Dispensationalist says no, we interpret those Old Testament prophecies alone and they almost always apply to a future millennium. So what you have here is you have an apostle an apostolic, inspired, case in Scripture, interpretation of an Old Testament passage that may at first appear to be about a physical temple being rebuilt, but it's actually interpreted spiritually to refer to Jews and Gentiles being the one people of God. So, you've got a clear distinction between how covenant theology views the big picture of the Bible and how dispensationalists do it. I'm a covenant theologian. I believe God has one plan, one people, one covenant. And it may look different throughout history, but it's all pointing towards that one promise that God... So here's the way I look at it. In eternity past, God said, I'm going to elect a people. In time, Adam came, was, was, was created, disobeyed God. God said, okay, everybody's going to fall into sin, but I'm going to send a promised redeemer. And that unfolds, it looks, you know, kind of unfolds with, with Noah, and then unfolds with Abraham, then Moses and David, down to the new covenant, down to Jesus. And then when Jesus dies on the cross and rises again, he fulfills that, and then he brings together the church made of both Jews and Gentiles. So it's one plan, one people for all time. Dispensationalists say, no, God has different ways of working at different times. Um, the Old Testament saints weren't saved the way we were. Most dispensations will say Old Testament saints were saved by obeying the law through the sacrificial system. Um, God has two different plans. God has two different people. Um, you always interpret the Old Testament in light of standing alone, not interpret it by the New Testament. Okay, now let's jump into why I am a amillennialist and not a premillennialist, okay? So, let me just give you the difference between the two. I'll just lay my cards on the table. I, and you, you can disagree with me, but this is, what I, this is after, after lots of study, and I'm going to try to lay a case for you tonight of why I believe it. Now, you can take it or leave it tonight and say, you haven't convinced me, or you can say, he's convinced me, or you can say, I need to, I need to do a little bit more learning. A premillennial view says that at the second coming of Christ, he will set up a earthly 
literal thousand-year reign on earth where people will live for a thousand years. And then at the end of that thousand years, Satan will deceive the nations, they'll be destroyed. Then you have heaven and hell. So you have this age, you've got a millennial age, and you've got the final heaven and hell age. The amillennial says the age we're living in right now is symbolic. It's a symbolic millennium. It's, it's, it's not a literal thousand-year reign after Christ comes back. Right now, saints in heaven are reigning with Christ, and so the, the thousand-year reign is a symbolic way of looking at what's happening right now. Okay. So I want to I teach a lot on eschatology tonight because I want you to see how the Bible defines things that happen related to end times before we even get to Revelation 20. Because here's the thing, guys. Revelation 20 is the only passage in the entire Bible that teaches a thousand-year reign. So you have to ask yourself a question. Do I build my entire theology off of one passage? Or do I look at what the entire Bible teaches about it and then look at the entire thing? Okay, so what does the Bible as a whole teach about the second coming, about the resurrection, and about judgment? Well, in Daniel 12, 12, interestingly, in the Old Testament, you have a reference to, and many of those sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel prophesies a resurrection. Now, who's being resurrected? Who's being resurrected? Who's being resurrected? Everybody. How are they distinguished? Believers go where? It's not that hard. They go to everlasting life. Some go to everlasting contempt. So there is a resurrection of the dead. The righteous go to heaven. The unrighteous go to, go to hell. I'm about to go up down. Um, so let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15. And this is a lot of information tonight, so you guys are going to have to hang with me. And, and I may not be able to have time for questions if, if we're going to get through everything. And we'll hopefully have time at the end. So 1 Corinthians 15 has a lot of information about the resurrection. It starts with the resurrection of Jesus, then it gets to like what happens with the, the resurrection from the dead. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 26. For as in Adam, what do we know about Adam? All die. Did we all die in Adam? Yeah, we did. So also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must rule until he's put all the enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Okay, what do we see in that passage of Scripture? What does verse 23 say? At his coming. What's that talking about? The second coming. What does verse 24 say? Then comes the end when he's going to destroy every rule. So let me ask you a question based upon this passage of Scripture. When Jesus comes back, Paul says it's the end and death is destroyed. 
Let me just ask you a question. Do you see mention of a thousand-year reign anywhere in that passage of Scripture? But what do you see? Christ comes back, it's the end, and death's the final enemy, and, and, and the enemies are destroyed. I want you to remember that order. The second coming, the end, death and judgment. Okay. Now let's go down to verse 50. 1 Corinthians 50, verses 50 through 57. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Stop right there. Flesh and what's flesh and blood? Physical, physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at when? At the Last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that's written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, what happens? What happens at the last trumpet? Can you say the last trumpet is basically the same thing as the second coming? If it's the last trumpet, is there anything after it? Okay. At the last trumpet, what's swallowed up in victory? Death. And we're raised and changed in a moment. Does this passage mention anything about a thousand-year reign? Okay. Let's look at Romans 8. It's on your sheet there. Some of these, uh, these long passages I have us look up, so I just save space on the PowerPoint. Romans 8 18 through 23. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of our sons, the redemption of our body. What does this text imply? At the second coming, creation will be renewed or restored. Does it mention anything about a thousand-year reign there? Okay. Now, here's the big one. This is the most explicit passage. 2 Peter 3, 8-13. And I want you just to read carefully. Now, I'm, I'm trying to convince you guys of something tonight, so I'm... I'm just trying to convince you. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not hiding what I'm doing, okay? Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord... How many days? The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then what will happen? 
The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting forward, hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You guys tell me, what happens at the second coming? The earth is what? Destroyed, and there's a new heavens and a new earth. Does that mention anything about a millennium? As a matter of fact, what does it tell you happens? The earth is destroyed, and then there's the new heaven and the new earth. All right? Matthew. Let's go to Matthew. I'm showing you all the New Testament passages, guys, that talk about the second coming to show you that they don't teach a thousand-year reign, but what they do teach, okay? So we're going backwards. Instead of going to Revelation and starting and, and proof texting, I'm going backwards showing you all the verses that, before we get to Revelation, okay? So Matthew 25, turn there real quick. Matthew 25, uh, 31 through 46. This is, the, um, this is the sheep and the goats. Final judgment. So Matthew 25, 30 minutes. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and His angels with Him, what does that sound like? When the Son of Man comes in His glory. The day of the Lord, second coming, okay. Then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. So what do the sheep receive? Their reward. Okay. Does it mention anything about a thousand years there? Okay. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked or clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Where do the goats go? Hell. Hell. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and did not welcome me. On and on and on and on. Down to verse... Um, 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. What's the order? Jesus comes back. He judges. There's heaven and hell. That's the order that Jesus teaches right here. Do you see a thousand-year reign? Okay. Now, let's go to 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 1, 5 through 10. Let's see if we see a, a pattern of an order here. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay affliction with those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, what does that sound like? Second coming. In flaming fire, 
inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who believed because our testimony to you was believed. What happens when Jesus comes back? There's judgment, right? And there's heaven and hell. Is there a mention there of a thousand-year reign? Okay. Yeah. John 5, 27 through 29. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Who comes out at the resurrection? Is it one resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous? Does Jesus mention anything there about a thousand-year reign? Okay. So here's what I'm going to say. Here's my conclusion. We can make the case that in in all the non-symbolic or non-apocalyptic passages, and I mean like not Revelation, that teach the second coming of Christ, we've looked at Jesus, Paul, and Peter, none of them mention a millennium. And all teach one resurrection of the dead and one final judgment. Mm-hmm. A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. That's more of a metaphor saying that on God's timetable, God's delaying His coming because it's His sovereign timetable. And to us, it may seem like a long time, but for God, it's not that big of a deal. That's not teaching a literal millennium or a thousand-year reign. That's ma- making more of a metaphorical statement about how God views time. Does that make sense? Well, it could be one day. That's one way of looking at it. So what I want to do now is I want to show you three passages of Scripture that all teach the same order of events. Matthew, 2 Thessalonians, and Revelation. And you guys tell me if they all teach the same order of events before we even get to Revelation 20. So turn to Matthew 24. I'm going to skip over some of Matthew, so just turn over two, two chapters. And I'm going to emphasize the words I want you to hear, okay? So I'm going to put the emphasis on the right syllable so you guys can... So Matthew 24, verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Great question. What do they, what do they ask Jesus? When are you coming back? What's the sign of the coming? What's the sign of the end? Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. I'm going to write that up there. No one leads you a... Ooh, this is a terrible pen. Does anybody have a better... Let's see. No... Oh, there's one. No one leads you astray. Okay? For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you'll hear wars and rumors of wars. Um, go down to verse 9. They will deliver you up to tribulation... 
You'll be persecuted, put to death. You'll be hated. Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Um, Go on down to verse 24. For false Christ and false prophets will arrive, performing great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand, see, if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. Um, If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now look at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes on the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. What's the order? A time of deception. How many times did I say, let us stray, let us stray, let us stray, let us stray? A time of what? Tribulation. Then, after the time of tribulation and a time of deception, then comes the, the, the coming of the Lord in power and glory and are being gathered to Him. Christ comes, we're gathered. Simultaneous back-to-back event. Does this passage anywhere mention a thousand-year reign? What's the order? A time of deception, a time of tribulation, the second coming of Christ, and our being gathered up to Him. We're in tribulation now. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so think about that order. Now, let's turn to 2 Thessalonians. That's Jesus. Let's see if Paul's in harmony with Jesus. Hopefully they are. If not, we've got a problem, Houston. Um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is the whole teaching about the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Christ and our being gathered to Him. What does that sound like? The coming of the Lord are being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter, seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. How does Paul define the day of the Lord? One day. The day of the Lord is His coming for us and our being gathered up to Him. One day. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless... What has to happen before that day comes? The rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so he takes a seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of the lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way." And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all powers and false signs and wonders and with wicked deception. 
for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so they may believe what is false <coughs> in order that they may be <laughs> condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. What's the order? The word gathered is the same. So the order is a time of deception by whom? In this passage, a man is lawlessness. It's also a time of tribulation because what's he going to do? He's going to set himself up against the church. He's going to do, um, there's going to be a time of um, a delusion, a time of wickedness. Then this has to happen before what? The coming of Christ and our being what? Gathered to Him. Now, what does Jesus do to the Antichrist when He comes? What does it say there? Verse 8. Jesus will kill with the breath of His mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of His coming. So who's destroyed at the coming of Christ? The beast, the Antichrist. Okay. Now, let's dive into Revelation finally. Revelation chapter 19. We were there a few weeks ago, but I want to show you again. Because what comes after Revelation 19? 20, okay. You guys are smart. I really love it. Revelation 19. What does this describe? Then I saw heaven open to behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes wars. Okay, so from verse 11 all the way to verse 16, that's the second coming of Christ, is it not? Okay, then look at verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of, flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the man of lawlessness, and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who was in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who'd received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. <coughs> okay, the beast and the false prophet who were deceiving were thrown into the lake of fire. But look at verse 18. Who's killed by the appearing of Jesus at the second coming of Jesus? Who's killed? All men. Both. Is there any other way to kind of say it pretty much everybody? Does it sound like there's anybody left? Okay. Question. According to 2 Thessalonians and this passage... What happens to non-believers at the coming of the Lord? When He comes in, when he comes in flaming fire to, to come back, what does He do? He destroys, destroys everybody. Okay. In here, who does He destroy? Everybody. Big question. Then who's left to enter a literal millennium? Who is left to enter a literal millennium? 
before you answer that, according to all these verses, there's a time of deception right before the end. We don't know how long that is. There's a time of tribulation right before the end. We don't know how long that is. There is the second coming of Christ and our being caught up to Him as a simultaneous back-to-back event. And then all three of these passages talk about the unrighteous are destroyed. Do any of these passages besides Revelation 20 mention a thousand-year reign? So here's the huge questions you've got to ask. And I put huge. Donald Trump, they're huge. They're huge. Big. They're going to be big. All right, here we go. Do we take the thousand-year reign as a literal event that takes place on planet Earth immediately following the second coming of Christ? If you do, you are premillennial. If that's your view, you are premillennial. That's the, that's the question. Is it, so the first question I ask, is it literal? Is it a literal thousand years? Does it take place on Earth? And does it take place after Jesus Christ has come back? And... This was a question Paul asked last week. What's the purpose of a literal millennium if believers have already been resurrected, raptured, and God's enemies have been destroyed? What's the purpose of it? Because it seems that all those other passages that we looked at said, when Christ comes back, there's judgment and that's the end. What would be the purpose of it? I give those as questions. Now, if you believe in a literal thousand-year reign, you must believe the following. And you must have sufficient biblical evidence to substantiate your claims. Okay? So if you're going to believe in a millennium based upon chapter 20, you've got to believe these things and you've got to have sufficient biblical evidence to substantiate your claims. You must believe that when Christ comes back, He will not destroy all His enemies, but the lost at that time will simply surrender without trusting Him for salvation and enter the millennium as unbelievers. Okay. You must also believe that glorified believers with resurrected bodies are living alongside those unbelievers, whether that's Jews converted during a seven-year tribulation or the lost people on earth that go into the millennium, and they enter the millennium with no resurrected bodies. So who do you have living in the millennium? Resurrected Christians along with non-resurrected people. There's a mixed multitude. And if they are living there together, how can they live so long if they're not in resurrected bodies, those that are unresurrected? Do they die in the millennium? If so, does the Bible teach that? Okay. Number three, you must believe that there will be unbelieving children born to believers who enter the millennium to make up the vast number of people who rebel at the end of that time. In other words, who are these people that rebel? That's the biggest issue for me. At the end of the millennium, according to Revelation chapter 20, when Satan goes out to deceive the nations, there's this vast multitude that marches up against the camp and, and God destroys them. Who are these people? Teenagers, Teenagers okay. What does Matthew 22:30 tell us? Now, it doesn't say anything specifically about the millennium, but it does say this, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Now, you can assume that what? 
are believers having sex in the millennium and having children? And if those children are born, are they believers or not believers? And if they're not believers, how can they be born to two resurrected people that come together and have sex and have an unresurrected or an unglorified person living? Some, some things you got to think about. Okay, You must also believe that unbelieving people will still have the opportunity to come to saving faith after the return during these thousand years. Because the premillennialists believe that during this thousand-year reign, if you, if you go into the millennium as a lost person, there's still a chance in that thousand years you could come to faith in Christ. Does the Bible say anything about when Christ comes back, doesn't it sound like it's, that's it? You must believe that even though Christ will reign in the flesh for a thousand years as king, literally there, people will still rebel and reject him. You must also believe that unbelievers will not be finally resurrected until at least a thousand years after the return of Christ. Because the premillennial view says the unrighteous are resurrected at the end of the millennium. There's two resurrections. At the second coming of Christ, believers are resurrected. At the end of the millennium, non-believers are resurrected. So you have two resurrections. You have the resurrection of the unrighteous at the second coming of Christ, the literal thousand years, and at the end of the thousand years, then you have the resurrection of the unrighteous. And you must believe that unbelievers will not finally be judged and cast into hell until at least a thousand years after the return of Christ. Whereas all those verses seem to sound that when he comes back and judges, that's it. Okay. Question. Those things that you have to believe in the literal millennium, the question you've got to ask is, does the rest of the Bible explicitly teach this? Or is it an inference? Okay. Now, let's talk about the issue of recapitulation in the book of Revelation. Recapitulation. In other words, we see the same thing over and over again. Go back to chapter 6. Revelation should have ended at chapter 6, shouldn't it have? And then like fast forwarded to chapter 21. How does chapter 6 end? Verse 15. The kings of the earth and the great ones, and the generals and the rich and powerful, everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide from us from the face of him who sees on the throne and from the ram, for the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand? What's the great day of the wrath that he's talking about? Right there's the coming of Christ, and people are wanting to hide because they know that it's the end. Okay, that's in chapter 6. Okay, let's go to chapter 16. We've seen the end multiple times already in Revelation. Chapter 16, verses 13 and through 16. Okay. Chapter 16. 13 through 16. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, okay, there's the, the unholy trinity there, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world. That sounds like deception, right? Mm -hmm. To assemble them for battle on the great day, day of the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief, blesses the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be exposed. And the, they assembled them at the place that in Hebrews is called Armageddon. Okay, so what's, what's happening here? The devil, the false prophet, and the beast are assembling all of the nations to assemble for a great day of battle at Armageddon. Okay. 
go to Revelation 19, 19 through 21 that we just saw. What did we just see back in 16? The nations of the earth assembled for battle on that great day, right? Okay, look at verse 19 of chapter 19. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered, gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast and the false prophet were captured who was in its pleasant presence had done signs which deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. Is this a different battle or is it the same battle? If it's a recapitulation, if, if Revelation is always telling the same thing over and over again from different camera angles, either this is a different battle than the other battle. But both of them talk about the great day. So it's got to be one day. Okay? Now, let's get to Revelation 20. You guys ready? Okay. We've already seen twice the nations gathered for battle. And we're going to see it again in Revelation 20. So if it's either the same thing or this is like three different battles, even though it's talking about the great day. Okay, so here we go. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and Christ, and they will reign with Him a thousand years." And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to see the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, here's the question you've got to ask. Do we understand Revelation 20 to follow chronologically or sequentially from Revelation 19? In other words, is it a historical sequence that what happens in Revelation 20 comes immediately right after the second coming of Christ in Revelation 19? Keep that thought. If you take it chronologically, who's been destroyed at the end of chapter 19? Everybody. How does Revelation 20 begin? Satan is being bound from deceiving the nations, which technically, if you take sequentially, have already been destroyed. So who is left for Satan to deceive? You understand what I'm saying? If Satan's being bound from deceiving the nations, who are these nations that he's deceiving? Because they've already been destroyed at the end of chapter 19. If you take chapter 20 sequentially is what happens next. 
Now, let me give you the premillennial answer. The answer given by premillennialists is that these are survivors of the great battle in 1911-21, through 21, but does that do an honest reading of the text? Does it say that some survived and went into the millennium? What does it say at the end of chapter 19? They all died. Okay, so if you take it sequentially, like the second coming of Christ, chapter 19, the death of everybody at His coming, and then chapter 20, the binding of Satan to deceive the nations, you have to go, wait a minute, who's He deceiving if everybody's been deceived? I mean, if everybody's been destroyed. So either you take it sequentially and deal with that problem, or you say, we've seen a recapitulation over and over again of the same thing told from different vantage points. So maybe Revelation 20 is not sequential. Maybe it's just the sequence in which John received the vision. Now think about this for a moment when you read the book of Revelation. When John says, I saw, I saw, does that necessarily mean that that's what happens in sequential order? Or does it mean that's just the order that John saw the visions? You understand what I'm saying? I'll, I'll leave that up to you. Let's talk about the binding of Satan. Because this is a problem, an apparent problem in the view that I hold. What is the nature of this binding? Okay, so let's just ask the question. Is, is Satan alive and well today? Is he a roaring lion looking for someone to devour? Does he throw flaming darts? Does he persecute in his attack? Has he been thrown down to earth and does he have great wrath? Okay, yes. But I want you to read this very carefully. You guys tell me, what has Satan been bound from specifically? Verse 3, what was it, Nancy? From deceiving the nations. There's a very specific reason why Satan is bound, is to prevent him from deceiving the nations. It doesn't say he's been bound from persecuting or bound from attacking or bound from tempting. He's bound specifically that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Now, what would deceiving the nations actually look like in the context of Revelation we've seen so far? What's the grand showdown that's happened in the past three chapters we've been looking at? What does Satan ultimately want to have happen? He wants to gather the armies of the earth under one rule to come against Christ. Can Satan do that on his own timetable? Can Satan deceive the entire world right now to do that? Not until God gives the appointed timetable. So what Satan wants to do here is he wants to assemble for battle the nations or lost people to go against God. He wants to do it prematurely. He wants to do it now. If Satan had his way, he would have a one world government where the entire nation is, is aimed against Christ and his church and that there would be the, the huge battle against God right now. God's restraining that in the sense Satan's been bound from doing that. Now, he can still attack individual Christians. He can still persecute. He can still throw flaming darts. But can he deceive the nations by assembling them all together for a worldwide battle against God? According to this, he can't. He's been bound from doing that. 
In other words, Satan is trigger happy to start this massive rebellion because he knows his time is short. But God determines when that timetable is. Go back to Revelation 16, 14. What did, what did, he, what did he want to do? For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of the Almighty. What was the Antichrist in, 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 First Thessalon- in Second Thessalonians doing? False signs and wonders. What did Jesus say will happen before the end? False signs and wonders. What is he doing here? He's performing signs and wonders. So right before the end, when Satan's been released, he can deceive the nations. And they will march up against Christ. But until that time, he's bound from doing it. Now, when did the binding of Satan occur? Does this tell you when it happened? If you take it sequentially, you would assume it happened with the second coming of Christ in the beginning of a literal millennium, if you take it sequentially. Okay? When did the Bible, when did the binding take it take place? Now, how have we been taking Revelation all along? Is, is, it, is it a literal, is, is, is Satan a literal dragon? Is it a literal chain? If it is, how long is it? Or are these symbols of God restraining him by his power? So if we take this symbolically, we realize that Satan was bound from deceiving the nations when Christ came in the flesh, preaching the kingdom of God, casting out demons, and then dying on the cross and rising again. What did Jesus face? And what do you have? What? Activity do you have more than any other time in the Bible, demonic activity? More than any other time in the Bible, when do you have demonic activity more than any other time? When Jesus showed up. When Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God, what happens? Everywhere he goes, he encounters demons. Because Satan wants to what? Deceive the nations. He wants to crush the seed. Genesis 3.15, is God going to let him do that? So when Jesus comes and preaches the gospel of the kingdom, he's binding Satan. Matthew 12.29, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. When Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, And when he died on the cross and he cast out demons and he rose again, he bound the strong man. Who's the strong man? Satan. From doing what? From tempting people? No. From deceiving the nations. Luke 10, 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. John 12, 31, Jesus is about to go to the cross. Now is the judgment of this world. The ruler of this world has been cast out. Colossians 2, 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. Now, um, we're not going to go to Revelation 12 just for the sake of time, but there's a lot of parallels between Revelation 12 and Revelation 20. Let's talk about the thrones. and, and the, here, Here's another question you've got to ask. Look at verse 4. Then I saw what? And seated on them were those to whom had the authority to judge was committed. And I saw what? Souls. Souls. 
of those who had been beheaded, who had not worshipped the beast. What does John see? Souls, not bodies of those who had been martyred. And what are they doing? Souls sitting on thrones. Question, huge question. Where does this take place? Where are the thrones? In heaven. Where, where else have we seen thrones all throughout the book of Revelation? Heaven. What does John see? Does he see bodies or does he see... Okay, souls. Okay. Huge question. Read this very carefully. Do we find anywhere in this text that the thousand years occurs on earth? Where are they reigning? On thrones as souls. This goes back to Revelation chapter 6. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on earth those who dwell on the earth? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they had been killed. Rest a little longer. Where are they resting? Where are the souls resting? In heaven, on these thrones. John sees souls, not bodies. So this is probably what we call the intermediate state. What's the intermediate state? When you die, where does your soul go? To heaven, directly. Do you have a body yet? When do you have a body? At the coming of Christ at the resurrection. So the intermediate state is what people are experiencing in heaven right now before Jesus comes back that have died in Christ. So this is probably the intermediate state in heaven right now where believers are in the presence of the Lord but have not yet been glorified with a new resurrected body which hasn't occurred yet. Not until the second coming. This vision of saints reigning in heaven right now and not on earth leads me to the conclusion that the thousand-year reign is to be taken symbolically to represent the current church age, the time from the ascension of Christ back to heaven until His return to earth. Notice also, who are they reigning with? Christ. Where is Christ? Where? At the right hand of God on what? A throne. Okay, Hebrews 1.3 tells us that He sat down at the right hand of the majesty. Hebrews 12.2 said He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So I'm going to ask you, do you see any evidence that this reign is on earth with physical bodies? And do we see anything in this text about Jesus literally ruling from a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem? Now, the other big problem, and we got seven minutes, so let me see if we can, he might be able to do it. So the Great Rebellion, there's some things I have to skip. Okay, so when the thousand years are ended, 
what happens? There's a great rebellion. Notice what it says. Satan's released for a little while. He does, what does he go out to do? Deceive the nations. What has he been prevented from doing? When he goes and deceives the nations, what does he do? He immediately gathers them for battle, which we've seen. And they surround the camp and the city. Fire comes down from heaven. But notice what it says at the end of verse 8. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Is that a small number or a big number? Okay, who are these people? So let's talk about the problems with the premillennial position. I've said this before, but let's just go through it again. You have resurrected believers with glorified bodies, the first resurrection, living with those who are not resurrected but still have natural bodies, a commingling of different states of existence on a literal earth. That's not the new heavens and the new earth yet. It's a millennial earth. Who is this massive number of people who rebel at the end of the millennium? Are they children of those who have resurrected bodies? How do they get into the millennium if Jesus has destroyed all his enemies at the second coming? How can they be, quote, silently in rebellion with Jesus physically on earth until the end? Just kind of hiding out for a thousand years until... Dispensationalists see these individuals as those who come to faith after the church has been raptured and survived the seven-year tribulation as people that enter the millennium. Historic premillennials see these individuals as those on earth at the second coming who were not judged, were not raised from the dead, who then repopulate the earth during the millennium. This argument is that since the millennial age will be somewhat of a renewal, people will live long lives like before the flood. How do people living on the earth at the second coming escape the judgment where Revelation chapter 19 and 2 Thessalonians and others clearly teach that when Christ comes back, that will be the end and the unrighteous will be judged and killed? What was the order we talked about? Deception, tribulation, second coming, resurrection, judgment. Okay, question. Premillennialist holds that the final judgment will take place after the literal thousand-year reign. Does the Bible in any other place explicitly teach a thousand-year gap between Christ's return and final judgment? Or do all the texts teach that when Christ comes back, it will be the end? Number eight, the rebellion at the end of the millennium makes a whole lot more sense if we take the thousand years to be a symbolic of the church age because you have the nations assembled for battle under the deception of the Antichrist who gets consumed at the second coming. Okay? Now you may say, well, this is, they're marching up against Jerusalem because it says right there, doesn't it? They marched against the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Does it literally say Jerusalem there? It says the beloved city. How has John already mentioned the beloved city? Let John interpret John. Revelation 3.12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Real temple or spiritual temple? Never shall he go in and out, and I will write... On him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven on my new name. 
This is an attack against the church, God's people. So, fundamentally, we're going we're gonna to get done because I've got a few more blanks here. Fundamentally, here are the two ways to interpret the millennium. It gets down to brass tacks, nuts and bolts, bottom line here. We take John's depiction of the thousand-year reign to be a description of the present reign of Christ and the triumph of God's people over those who seek to destroy Him. And it's viewed as a heavenly reign of believers in heaven right now while on earth we're still dealing with the, the time of tribulation and at the end Christ comes back. It's a symbolic period. That's millennialism. Or the other way you can look at it is fundamentally... You see Revelation 20 is depicting a literal thousand-year reign on earth after Christ's return in which people coexist in resurrected and unresurrected bodies. Here's the bottom line. The entire New Testament teaches that final judgment is associated with the second coming of Christ. This being the case, then the thousand-year reign must occur before and not after the second coming of Christ. And I've given you one minute for questions. You may have never heard this interpretation before in your life. And you may totally disagree with it. But it's food for thought for you to go think about these things. So we are in the thousand year reign. Yes. The will say we are... We are in the thousand-year reign if you take it symbolically. Yeah, and, 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 it's, symbolic and it's symbolic. It's not a literal thousand years. It's, a, it's symbolic of the church age where believers are reigning with Christ right now in heaven as souls. We're down here on the earth dealing with stuff. Right before the end, there will be the man of lawlessness. There will be a time of deception. There will be a great time of tribulation. Christ will come back. We will be resurrected or raptured. He will destroy all of His enemies. There will be the final judgment, and then there will be the new heavens and the new earth. So it's a very simple model. And, and I think you're saying that tribulation will increase. Yes. We could certainly say that term. Yeah, tribulation, tribulation has been happening all throughout history, yes. but it will increase. Right, We don't know how long it will be, but it will increase because there will be deception. And... Satan, once Satan is, like, so right now Satan's bound from deceiving the nations, symbolically. But when God lets him loose to do that, that's, there will be major tribulation. That's, that's the trigger, right? Major tribulation, major deception, all the armies of the earth, and then that's, you know, that's when the end will come. You start seeing signs and wonders. Yeah. By his character. Yeah. The individual people, yes. Now, the spirit of those are alive and well. So the false prophet is the spirit of false teaching that affects the church that's been around forever. The beast or the antichrist is, is totalitarian governments that come against God's people. So all throughout history, there have been like manifestations of that. But in the final days, there will be a literal, I believe, a literal person representing those as a real person who will literally lead and literally be thrown into the lake of fire. Does that, does that make sense? So it's kind of an already, not yet. It's already happening, but it, not yet. And there'll be one final individual person, the Antichrist, the false prophet.
You got voted out last year. Okay. Um, any other final questions before we close down shop? I may be hanging around a little bit afterwards if you have more questions, but I know some of you got to pick up your kids. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Um, help it be clear. Help us to glorify you. Um, help us to be good Bereans and go search the scriptures to see if what I said is true. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.